Hello, my name is Bill Coglin, and welcome to First Person Civil War Podcast, which retells the stories of the soldiers and officers on the ground in the battles of the Civil War. Episode 9 is entitled Private Edward Young McMorris and the First Alabama at the Battle of Franklin. Private McMorris wrote History of the First Regiment Alabama Volunteer Infantry. CSA, in 1904, which serves as this episode's source. Edward Young McMorris lived in Peyrote, Alabama, before the war began, and his preparation for the Civil War was earlier than most. In 1859, McMorris and other men in the town formed an infantry company called the Peyrote Guards. The state of Alabama mustered the guards into service on 13 February 1861 and was incorporated into the Confederate Army on 1 April 1861. The guards were now Company C, 1st Alabama Infantry. All of this occurred before the firing on Fort Sumter. The 1st Alabama saw service in the Western Theater of the War, present at battles such as Pensacola and Island No. 10 along the Mississippi River. The Confederate garrison surrendered at Island No. 10, and Private McMorris was sent to Camp Butler in Springfield, Illinois, as a prisoner of war. On 7 September 1862, the 1st Alabama was exchanged, with Private McMorris, now in Company G, and joined the fighting at Port Hudson, where it again surrendered in July of 1863, this time being paroled. The 1st Alabama reconstituted again and fought in the Georgia Campaign. In late 1864, rather than engaging Sherman's army, as it marched towards Savannah, Georgia, General Hood, now in command of the Army of Tennessee, decided to advance towards Nashville and engage Union forces in that state. Private McMorris and the 1st Alabama advanced into Tennessee from Florence, Alabama, on 20 November 1864, as part of Brigadier General William A. Quarles's brigade and Major General Edward C. Walthall's division of Lieutenant General Alexander P. Stewart's Corps, which pursued the Union Army of the Ohio under Major General John M. Schofield, northeast toward Nashville. At Columbia and Spring Hill, Tennessee, the Army of Tennessee almost blocked the Army of the Ohio's route of retreat. On 29 November, Private McMorris and the 1st Alabama raced to support the Confederate units already engaged. Our Corps was on a forced march to pass the enemy and throw itself across the Franklin Pike in front, thus cutting off his retreat. And he continues, At about 9 p.m., we were halted one quarter of a mile from the Franklin Pike, north of Spring Hill, and in rear of Schofield who was then being hard-pressed at Spring Hill by Forrest, who was the cavalry commander. This day's march of 28 miles by the route we traveled 
which he described as fields and hills and not roads, was the greatest the regiment had ever performed. Stacking our arms and eating, we spread down our blankets upon the ground and were soon asleep, feeling sure that we had the enemy bagged. We supposed our corps extended across the Franklin Pike. This posting across the turnpike was not completed. The entire Army of Tennessee camped just east of the road, but did not block it. That night, the entire Army of the Ohio departed by the turnpike, and somehow managed to make little to no sound while marching past the sleeping Confederates. An astonished Private McMorris woke the next morning to see no enemy to their front. The extreme right was in 200 yards of it, meaning the pike, as we saw next morning. Why were we halted just there, leaving a way for the enemy to escape after all of our hard marching? The reason, if there was a reason and it was not a blunder, is unknown to us. Private McMorris and the 1st Alabama joined in the pursuit on 30 November 1864. And by that afternoon, the Army of Tennessee arrayed itself for an assault upon the Union defenses just outside of Franklin, Tennessee, with both Union and Confederate armies roughly equal in terms of soldiers. Private McMorris and the 1st Alabama posted on the eastern side of their army, and he took stock of the ground before him. Hardly an hour before sunset, Hood's army was drawn up in full view of the enemy, entrenched behind two parallel lines of breastworks, about 150 yards apart. The outer line was an ordinary ditch two or two and a half feet deep, the inner line a ditch three and a half feet deep and four feet wide, with a thick and strong embankment, along which were portholes for muskets and embrasures for artillery. At one point of the line, in front of an old gin house, there was a strong redoubt about 50 feet long, whose ditch was 5 feet wide and 4 feet deep, and rampart 4 feet high, making 8 feet from the bottom of the ditch to the top of the parapet. These outer and inner lines were the two main defensive lines of the Army of the Ohio. The outer line which was closer to the Confederate army, was also smaller than the inner or main line. At 4 p.m., the Army of Tennessee advanced against the Army of the Ohio. When about 100 yards from the outer line, we received the first volley from the enemy. The command double-quick was given. Cheers changed to rebel yells, officers still in front. We charged the outer line. The rattle of musketry now drowned all commands of officers, and here Captain Dick Williams, acting lieutenant colonel of the regiment, walking backwards to face the regiment, as officers frequently do on drill, would wave his sword right and left, and then thrust it toward the enemy, indicating this by acts instead of words, what he would have us do. In short order, the outer line of the Army of the Ohio was carried. 
the regiment that the 1st Alabama advanced against was the 65th Ohio, and its commander, Major Orlo Smith, remarked about their fight and retreat to the inner line. Only the bravery, energy, and determination of both officers and men saved the brigade from capture or destruction. But after severe fighting with the enemy, the 65th, with the rest of the brigade, fell back to the works. It was desperate fighting indeed, and it would soon become even more intense. Private McMorris and the 1st Alabama realigned itself and advanced upon the main line. By this time, owing to the stillness and rarity of the atmosphere, the smoke of musketry had settled in such a dense bank over the field in front that friend could not be distinguished from foe and at a distance of a few steps. The enemy, four lines deep behind strong entrenchments, were sweeping the old field between us with many balls, and a battery of siege guns to our right and beyond Big Harpeth River was tearing up the ground and knocking trees into fragments around it. Through a dense smoke and tempest of iron, our officers still leading and the rebel yell still ringing, the army in perfect order charged the inner line. The 1st Alabama was now advancing toward the 65th Illinois and the 65th Indiana, and Private McMorris was caught in a hail of gunfire and artillery in front of the Union works. Dead and wounded had fallen at every step of our advance, and our ranks were badly thinned. When the number and position of the enemy stood revealed, Every old Confederate saw that this was to be a fight of one to two, with an enemy strongly entrenched. But despising numbers or advantage of position, they leapt down into the ditch, climbed up the embankment, enveloped in a sheet of fire, and from the ramparts discharged their pieces into the face of the enemy. And he continues, One hundred yards to our left, their lines and batteries were carried and now he describes the regiments in front of him. As it was, the unequal contest on the breastworks was maintained hardly more than a minute when our men took the ditch on the opposite side and fought the enemy across the ramparts, muzzle to muzzle. The enemy soon began enfilading our lines, and after half an hour's fighting in this position and hoping in vain for Johnson's reserve, this was a Confederate division not yet engaged, it was plain that we must escape by flight back to our lines, or be captured or killed. The brigade commander of the 65th Indiana and 65th Illinois was Colonel John S. Casement, who summarized, albeit sparingly, of receiving the Confederate advance. The enemy attacked in force at about 4 p.m., engaging the whole line. The firing was kept up with great vigor until dark, during which time the enemy made several distinct charges, but were repulsed each time with terrible slaughter. Private McMorris and what remained of the 1st Alabama fell back to their original positions and the next morning found the battlefield devoid of the Army of the Ohio. It was already on the march to Nashville, 
where it would concentrate with Major General Thomas's Army of the Cumberland. The two armies that faced each other at Franklin approximately matched in size, but in terms of casualties, the Confederate Army of Tennessee suffered heavily. While an exact number differs on what source you look at, Private McMorris saw the aftermath that morning as such. The bodies of our dead lay thicker and thicker as you go from the outer to the inner line, and in the ditches they were literally banked up three or four men deep. The immense ditch in front of the redoubt was nearly full of the dead, which were the briefly carried works to his left, and he describes where his brigade advanced. There were also men lying along the top of the breastworks, and some even within the enemy's lines. Six Confederate generals died in the assault, and several more were wounded. The charge of the Army of Tennessee that November day proved too costly, but John Bell Hood's General Field Orders No. 38, published on 1 December, saw the heavy loss of life in a different light. Each regiment that day heard the following. The commanding general congratulates the Army upon the success achieved yesterday over our enemy by their heroic and determined courage. The enemy have been sent in disorder and confusion to Nashville, and while we lament the fall of many gallant officers and brave men, we have shown to our countrymen that we can carry any position occupied by our enemy. Though the Army of Tennessee pushed the first Union line from its positions, the second line of the Army of the Ohio held relatively firm, with limited Confederate success in the center of the battlefield. To say that Union positions were carried was a bit of a stretch. The Confederates did command the field on 1 December, but there was no Army of the Ohio to contest them for it. Private McMorris, having heard General Hood's field orders and writing his book in 1904, still held General Hood in high regard. I shall not pause to refute the absurd story that General Hood next morning spoke disparagingly of the conduct of his army at the Battle of Franklin. General Hood was incapable of either falsehood or impropriety. Though depleted by the Battle of Franklin, the 1st Alabama continued toward Nashville with the Army of Tennessee, where it suffered a major defeat. In March of 1865, it saw fighting in Averisboro and Bentonville, North Carolina, before General Johnston surrendered the 1st Alabama and the rest of his army to Sherman. Edward Young McMorris became a teacher after the war in several locations in Alabama, and he also founded the Clayton University Training School and got an honorary doctorate from the University of Alabama. Edward Young McMorris wrote History of the 1st Regiment Alabama Volunteer Infantry, CSA, in 1904, and did it rather reluctantly. 
It is well known that for 20 years, I have resisted urgent appeals of surviving comrades to write a history of the 1st Alabama Regiment. Even now, I yield my consent to undertake this sketch only after fully realizing that unless I write it, the regiment will be left without any record, and that it will be better for the regiment to have a poorly written record than none whatever. It was at the behest of Colonel Steedman, the regimental commander, and Thomas M. Owen, director of the Department of Archives and History of Alabama, that Edward Young McMorris wrote this book. And I must say, as I researched and worked on this episode, I couldn't help but wonder how many men refused to write either regimental histories or their personal experiences. And because of this, so many soldiers' stories went with these men when they died after the Civil War. Thank you for listening to the ninth episode. The link to Private McMorry's book is now available on the podcast website, firstpersoncivilwarpodcast.com. On Facebook, Instagram, X, and LinkedIn this week, is a picture of Private Edward Young McMorris. Please like, comment, and subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it. The podcast also received one donation this week. Thank you for your support. First Lieutenant Michael H. Fitch, Regimental Adjutant of the 21st Wisconsin, provides next week's first-person account at the Battle of Perryville. My name is Bill Coglin, and thank you for listening to First Person Civil War Podcast.